Welcome back, everyone, to episode five. I think we just had an argument about whether this was four <laughs> or five. Um, but welcome back to episode five of Very Public Breakdown, where really, uh, you know, there's so much happening right now. It's beautiful outside. Life's good. Uh, and we're really excited to have a special guest with us. We wanted to, uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have other special guests. But we figured, um, you know, in, in previous um so much of our podcast has just been winging it. So this time we decided maybe we should try this out and see how we actually do um, having other people on the show. So our good friend Dan Hedstrom is on this show with us. And I don't know if he's actually going to uh, understand his cue and speak now. But... <laughs> oh, there hey, he guys. Is. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, so glad to have welcome, you. Welcome, Dan. Welcome. Um, so, Dan, you know, tell you, you're one of the more interesting people that I've known, and actually this is, this is uh, I just want to make this point, is that when we started this show, we, we thought that we would have conversations uh, with interesting people, and I think initially our thought on what, what interesting meant was that it was, you know, people who are famous or powerful or whatever. And, you know, that's all true, and we'll get to that. But um, in conversations with the people who listen to this show, people were just like, you know, it'd be really interesting to just hear other voices. Um, and one thing that I think we're very lucky to have is just um, both Jake and I and you, Dan, through our friendships, um, be they from home growing up or our various college experiences or our adult lives, uh, we all seem to have met really interesting people. And on the list of interest, on the on the spectrum of interesting people, I would say, Dan, you're like, you're like in the 98th percentile of interesting. So we're really wow. I know that's the only nice thing I'm going to say. <laughs> um, so tell us a little about yourself. Like, where are you? What are you doing? What's happening? That was a very nice introduction. I have I to know. say, <laughs> I'm glad this is recorded so I can review that over and over when I need appreciation. You'll only get one. <laughs> um, so right now I live in Van Nuys, California. I mean, Los Angeles area is a very interesting place to live in. So I've kind of bounced around in the valley primarily because that kind of fits in with the Minnesota odd rural suburban background. But right now I'm just out here having fun, enjoying the sun, trying to, you know, get out of my own way when it comes to seasons and expectations, realizing there's sun every day. And I, right now I work at NBC Universal and then try to fit in as many hobbies as I can. Yeah, so tell us about your hobbies. I mean, I know there are 300 of them, but like what? <laughs> well, it is really difficult when I moved here because growing up in Minnesota, I'm glued to the seasons, right? I mean, you do yeah. certain things during the springtime because you have to, certain things during the winter because you have to, summer, fall, etc. You know, and then you, you toss in everyone else's life and school and work, and you really don't feel like you have many options, and it makes life easy. In Los Angeles... It's sunny every single day. The seasons are not different from Minnesota. In a, in a, or they're different in a sense that they don't dictate your life. So you're just stuck here, <laughs> depressed on a beautiful sunny day, realizing that you have to do something or be with some people. And I'm not one that really likes to spend my time in the bar. So, you know, currently it's getting my private pilot's license. It's surfing on the weekends. Um, I just bought a second motorcycle, which is a sport bike rather than a Harley, to enjoy that difference. Um, looking into different things with the military, see if I can serve some time when I have time, I guess. And then there's different hobbies, you know, starting some companies, um, just getting to know new people. 
that's but that's really interesting you say that about the uh, the weather and kind of the seasons i've never really heard anybody articulate that about um you know moving out of minnesota and going to a place that everybody idolizes and having it be sort of a struggle um yeah yeah it was it was really different i didn't expect it either you know i when i was 18 i left minnesota and went to denver and went for two years of school there and and played soccer and snowboarded on the weekends between school and and pursued music and when i moved to north dakota to finish my school i noticed the sun felt different but i didn't understand that how seasons really affected me how when it's friday and you look at that weekend for, forecast and it's cloudy and rainy and it just bums you out and you have to yeah. change all your plans here you wake up and it's one of those weekends where you just don't want to do anything and it's sunny and you feel this guilt this like minnesota guilt that it's a sunny weekend and i have to go do something it took me a really long time to actually get over that and realize that i can sleep in and do nothing on a sunny day that it's okay to not do anything right exactly yeah Yeah. i mean i think i think that's something that really doesn't exist i mean you know like i i feel really lucky that in all the places, D.C., Minneapolis, Chicago, all the places I've lived have been places that feel like four distinct seasons. Um, but it, it is it is kind of fascinating to get away from that pressure of like, oh, you know, here in Minnesota, it's like, OK, it is the July. Th- it's the end of July. And, um, you know, it's beautiful outside. And I'm like trying to figure out the ways that we can record this podcast outside. Right. Because, you know that come October and November, it's going to be snowing and we're going to be crying and our seasonal depression, <laughs> seasonal depression is going to set in and like everything's going to be ridiculous, right? But so like it's, it's really interesting to just know that like those dynamics are other, you know, that that dynamic plays out in different ways in different places. I agree. It's, it's been really interesting to figure out how more and more that idea of seasons of change really play a role in everything. And I feel fortunate to be able to grow up in Minnesota where you are forced to have seasons and forced to do things differently. Because going to California, I have found that it's it's different interacting with different people that are used to living in seasons. And and whether it's doing work projects, Say whether more it's about relationships. Like how, in what ways is it different? So seasons have changed, right? So when we we're talking about the weekends and sometimes it's okay to do nothing on a sunny day. It seems like there's a propensity, depending on where people grew up and how they interact with weather and seasons, how the world, right, with this global forecast, climate, however you view that, in reality, it's a big thing that does what it does most of the time, and we can't affect it. We can't change it. We can't say no. In conversations and with people, I think people are constantly battling whether they can say no, whether they get to do what they want or not. And I've found that seasons can really help people be patient except the world around them and oftentimes work a little differently in a team atmosphere. Maybe that's a stretch, but yeah, I've never found a team atmosphere that I work. I think you're right. Like, I think, like, I think extreme weathers do that for sure. I mean, I think when, when there's a blizzard and things shut down here in Minneapolis, like people just become generally nicer. I, I find that <laughs> there's like, they, people have and to slow ex- down and be like, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to get anywhere if we are honking at each other and trying to pass when there's, you know, six inches of snow coming down in a half hour. Like we got to just chill out. Like we're smaller than all this. 
And there's a great equalizing factor in, like, bad weather. I don't know how we got to talking about the weather, but you're really right. Because <laughs> it's riveting, Michael. Because, because we are not, like, that's the most Minnesotan thing ever, <laughs> talking about the weather. Um, well, to, sh- but, to shift that into, like, a, a, you know, the weather is just an excuse, right? It's something that doesn't have to do with us that we can bounce off of and work back in a team atmosphere. So it's like that season to do nothing, whether it's in politics, I think there's always those seasons of when to do something and when to not. And hopefully everyone's on the same page, a season like Minnesota, everyone's forced to be on the same page. There's no arguing it, but trying to find that right political climate or that right environment on the team is really tough to do. Yeah. So interesting. Um, uh, not obviously. I always say obviously as if the world understands like the background on everything. Um, but so the three of us, uh, people don't know, we grew up in the same town in Minnesota. Uh, we all performed in choir together. And, and I think Dan, didn't you and I sit next to each other in choir? Wasn't it probably pretty like tenor ones? Yeah, no, tenor ones, tenor twos. I was a two. I sat in the back row, and I was. We I must was have sat by each other, Dan. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember looking at those tenor ones, always in front. Yeah, you were a tenor two. You sat literally next to me. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I can't remember. People don't forget, to... Dan. People don't forget. I had. I know. I had to, don't know what I had for lunch today, but I know um, that you were a tenor two. But anyway, so you um, you have been pretty successful as a musician. So tell people about that. Oh, music has been so strange to me. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, you know, I've been taking a sabbatical off for music, but um, in the last few years, I've been trying to figure out how it fits into my life, and that started since choir. I mean, when I was in choir, I was struggling how to go to my soccer teams at the same time as choir, because, you know, sometimes those choir events are at the same time as soccer games or the same time as sport events. And that followed through into college. Same thing. Um, I was a, I had a scholarship for music and for athletics and my coach would fight with my choral director because people just didn't expect for you to do both. And that kind of continued through of this dichotomy of how do I fit music in my life? And it took me a while until I, until I just started making it happen. And removing some things from my life like cutting back a little on work so i had more time to do music mm-hmm. um deciding not to do sports anymore because i felt like music was something that could go farther and impact me in different ways in life than sports can obviously right. when your body doesn't start working out so it wasn't until um, i moved back to alexandria and, and built a few of those houses that i felt like i had my space to really enjoy music and i took that time to go to work and come home and i would you know, play for two and a half, three hours every night and learn piano and sing by myself. I think to just make myself feel like I was a musician. I don't know at what point people decide they're musicians, but I've almost never thought I was one. Uh It seems like it just takes practice and time and doing it. So throughout a bunch of changes, you know, I moved to Los Angeles. I decided to finally write some music, record an album. I, I would play at a lot of private events, whether they would be parties weddings and just get to know different people and and a lot of different opportunities showed up that I weren't expected to find. Right. I think that that's really interesting. Um, and in this, you got to a really good point that I really relate to is that like that, you know, for me, it's playing the viola or the cello generally are, are my two main music outlets every now and then the piano, but I was never very good at that. But like, the the it is such a great outlet for just whatever's going on in my life like i 
you know, very often if I've had a bad day at work, I'll come home and I'll play or just a bad day anywhere. I'll come home and play for an hour or two. And it's just like, it is the most, um, grounding sort of, it's, it's free therapy for me. And I, I truly wonder, and, and that there's no shade in this. I wonder how people who don't have that outlet, um, or at least an outlet sort of get through the day. And I think, um, all to sort of put a bow on all of this, it, it feels very much like one of the most important things, like whether you're just uh, whether you're going through a tough phase in life or, um, you know, just getting through the day to day. Like it's so important to have a ho- to have a hobby and to not be monomaniacal. And mm-hmm. I think that for me has been the most um, the most important part of the music part of my identity is just like for 10 years, this 10 year block of my life from 21 to now 31, so many people who didn't haven't, who didn't know me before age 21 had no idea that like up until that point, the largest part of my identity was that of a musician. And then you replace that. And like that, the, the musician part didn't go away. And, but it was certainly superseded by politics. Right. Yeah. And now sort of, um, I found that it's so, I don't know if it's liberating or empowering or what the right word is, but it, it is just so important. And like, really, it, um, the effects have been so helpful to just see like how much I enjoy showing that side of myself to other people and showing people that like, Oh, I am kind of a d- dynamic person. I'm not a one trick pony. Um, and I think so many people out there, um, you know, struggling or just sort of trying, not struggling, just trying to get through your life, get through the day. Um, I really advise people to just like, make sure that you have a hobby, make sure that you're making time for stuff that you love for things that make you happy, things that maybe don't make you money. But like, uh, cause I will say that for me, music in the past year has been like literally a lifeline. Um, so mm-hmm. it, I was going to ask uh, you guys, do you, do you remember like a time in your life, either of you, where you sort of reclaimed music as your own, um, your own hobby, your own, like you made it individualized? Because for me, like, like you guys say, like music has always been such a huge part of my life. I mean, I learned how to play piano in second grade and I continued on through college. But, um, you know, while it was individualized, I think when I was a teenager, I focused more on well, I didn't focus on it, but it became, it was a, such a social thing that I didn't, most of my practicing and, you know, being in choir and things, it was with people. I didn't spend time, you know, short of playing piano. Um, I didn't spend those hours by myself playing mm-hmm. by myself. I didn't sing by myself in a great amount or anything like that. And I think I found after college that like, that part of my identity was missing and it took a little while to understand that like I, I just wasn't playing like I always had. And it, t- it took a bit to like reclaim that like, no, this was my thing that I actually like to do for me. And it was sort of cloaked in so- like the social element or something like that. I don't know. Did you mm-hmm. guys find that like you always had it where you would go home and, and play for hours at a time way back when you were a kid or is that something you sort of grew into or, yeah, I um, I certainly did. I mean, for me, it was, uh, you know, I was studying to be a classically trained cellist, uh, 
and violist. And so like for me, it was it was very much a there was so much of, it, of my time was spent practicing on my own. I think probably in high school, I would play four or five hours a day um, alone, you know, try to play like an hour or two in the morning if I could. And then like four hours at night. That's why I never did any of my homework. Um, so for me, it wasn't. Uh, and and I also didn't really thrive off of the. Um, I mean, if if I'm being really honest, I, I never got the like social joy out of ensemble playing. Um, for me, it was always like this struggle of like, oh my gosh, it, it was it was more frustrating. So uh, all that to say, like, yeah, for me, it was it was always a thing that I spent a lot of time doing on my own, which really has probably made it easier to. Um, to maintain, right? Because I've, I've always been used to playing by myself, so I don't need to play in an orchestra, though I, I have recently started doing some of that. But, like, you know, it's, it's just been a much more natural thing to, to maintain. Yeah. I guess I, part of my realization that I've had recently, it was, like, the frustration that music was such a cornerstone of my personality and my life, and yet there were... I can look to times where I felt like I wasn't in control of how I expressed my desire to play music and and participate in things musically like i feel like when i was a child i individualized it a lot more and i appreciated it and i wanted to play on my own and somehow during like during school it became a thing that i only did you know in school and and then i'd come home and i'd practice the piano for a half hour but that was such a you know, uh, a nominal portion of my music education that like, it doesn't register so much anymore. And then, and then after college, when the, when that kind of went away, I sort of stopped playing. And and I, and those were all like, I feel like those were subconscious or those aren't even choices that I really had a, a say in. It just sort of, my life was just going in that way. And I sort of had a realization a couple of years ago, like, no, that was something that you always appreciated, and it wasn't about um, all these other things. I don't, I don't know if that's clear at all, but it was. Yeah, I, I find it, it to be an interesting thing that, like, sometimes other forces can drive, you know, big clear. aspects of you. It is clear, and I think to me the real point is like whether it's hobbies or relationships or whatever, like the things that we love take work and nurturing, and like. So often it's really like you can really you can be in a in one set of circumstances where you're really enjoying something and then circumstance or where you're enjoying something or someone and then the circumstances change and you're like, wait, like, you know, where it's just not as convenient to like have that to, to find that joy. You don't find that joy as as easily. And I just keep finding over and over the older I get that like, wow, the things that I love. Uh, you really gotta like make time for them, make space for them, because otherwise, just like the daily business of life gets in the way, and the next thing you know, you're not doing those things that you love, you're not spending the time with the friends that you love, you're not, um, you know, nurturing your relationships the way you should. So, yep. um, I, I I think that's really true. Um, <clears throat> so, here's a question, which. I'm I'm curious. Did either of you watch night one of the Democratic debate last night? I did not. Okay, Dan. Yes. Is that a lie? No. Uh, <laughs> I was I was at work. I was actually caught between. I, I would have loved to be at home and and just like eat some food and veg out and listen to it. But I uh, 
stayed at work late and listened to like the first third. And then uh, YouTube TV got mad at me and wouldn't let me pause it for so long. So I watched then the, the last third of it as well. Okay. So what'd you think? Be honest. What did I think? Um, just, just know that I'm going to disagree with you a lot, probably, and that'll be fun. <laughs> I, I think for me, just the way my background is project management, trying to get people to show their best self in an allotted period of time. I've, I was frustrated from the get-go. I was frustrated that you know the way they do the format of the debates, that they time box things in a way that I'm not familiar with. So I, I really wish they would tell you right off the bat that, hey, by the way, here are the questions that are going to happen throughout the night. Give me like a sidebar, and everyone's time boxed in a 15 seconds. I thought to start it out, everyone really struggled to stay within that 10 seconds. You know, rather than giving one idea, they're trying to give three, and it's right. constant interruption. That's pretty normal, but as it goes on, people are a lot a little more time. I was it was hard to, for me to follow in the beginning. You know, you try to tone out because you're trying to move on with the listener, and it, and it was kind of tough, but. That's kind of my general from the from the start of it. Yep. Otherwise, I thought you know everyone everyone did a good job. They got more into the flow. It was nice to see that improvement this time around. So if you had to pick a winner and a loser from last night, you can maybe pick one or two of each, however many you want. If you were to just pick a winner and a loser, there's no wrong answer. Who would you pick? Um, I thought the Montana governor. I thought he did a good job throughout the night of settling into himself. So I saw kind of the that was the biggest winner as far as most improved. Um, biggest loser, I don't like to say on those. That's going to be depend on a, what they were trying to go out through the night. Right. But I always feel it's, it's what's their vibe they're trying to do. And, and Bernie's a tough one for me because he's so exuberant and so passionate. And we all know those people in meetings. So I, I'm trying to wonder, you know, what is his purpose? Is it try to just craft the debate and get people involved and passionate and accurate? Or does he really want to does he want to win, win that seat? Because right. he is, you know, when he throws his armors on and does that, it it gives everyone a feeling, and it gives me a feeling too. Trying to watch it, <laughs> right? <laughs> that I, I'm not sure what to do with, you know, <laughs> is he out of control or that is him controlling himself? <laughs> right. Like is is that the like is that the cause or the effect of whatever right, going exactly. on? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. I think. Um, uh, that, I think that's really interesting. Some uh, Vance, not Vance, Van Jones last night said uh, something that I think is really interesting. He said, um, Bernie Sanders is trying to lead the revolution, but that Liz Warren um, was trying to lead the country and to be president. And I thought that was a really interesting take on it, huh. which actually was pretty close to what you said, Dan. You were like, what is he, what's trying, what's he trying to do here? You know, I'll, like, I think. Right. You know, uh, I, yeah, um, that's really interesting. Jake, you didn't watch, right? No, I didn't. I uh, took a little time with my wife. We went and had a burger and some ice cream. Went on a little walk. Just kind of just kind of had a nice summer Nurturing night. Nurturing that relationship. Yeah, like, for sure. Why would I want to get that's... all riled up and uh, and generally frustrated? And that's sort of my attitude toward the campaign generally. It's just like. Um, you know, there are certain things to really care about. A super early on debate um, for me right. is important for sure. And I did feel a little bad that I didn't watch it and uh, was doing as much reading and stuff as I could this morning on it. But um, yeah, just sort of takes it's not uh, not number one priority in my life. 
Yeah, I think but, that's 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 fine. And but actually, it's not a, or go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, you are not alone there because I just checked to see how the ratings were, and I think 10 million people watched this, and like 18.2 or something watched uh, the first night of the last one. So. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, getting like what? What is that? Fifty-five percent of what you got the last time, uh, which is no surprise. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's not surprising. It's just this is not a time when people are cued into it, and I think that. Pro- I mean, from a campaign background, that's a really hard place to be, because like you want to sort of have this realistic, like everybody else. It's what is it? July thirty-first. Everybody's on vacation and just sort of doing things with their family and you're trying to break through the noise um and also you know they're trying to uh it's it's just hard it's a really hard time so So, i based on like the synopsis based on how like the media was sort of responding to it it seemed like it was you know unsurprisingly a division of you know um the bernie far left like super progressive agenda versus the more moderates looking for attention and looking for their moment. Is that kind of how you would frame the night as well? I would not, I would not okay. actually. Um, and you know how I feel about the press. Yeah. Well, tell um, us, tell us what you so think. So I just wouldn't frame it like that. I think that like, I, 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 and I posted this on Facebook last night. I really believe that like the press wants us to have, because this is what gets ratings, right? Like the press wants us to believe that this election is a, Left versus center versus, you know, maybe center. No, there's no center right Democrats running. But this is a left versus center thing. And, and, you know, there there are certainly certain approaches to it. But I I just absolutely disagree with that. Because you want to know what? Every person, this is not left versus center. This is, you know, there are are different approaches. But there are very few, like, fundamental policy differences of of the 10 people that we saw on stage there are they certainly have different means by which they would use to get to to get to those ends right like you know some some want medicare for all some want medicare for all who want it some want a public option some want you know to to change the way we regulate you know like people have very different ways of getting to universal health care let's say or very different ways of addressing climate change, or very different ways of, um, you know, handling um, institutionalized racism in the country. Um, but the, like, the the they agree on the fundamentals, and so I really just I think that it is all on like style, and really, um, the, the election is not going to be about to me. It's not going to be about left versus middle. It's going to be about right versus wrong, and it's going to be like it's to me. It's an authenticity. Um, it's really about yeah. who people look at and feel like they're not being pandered to. I think that is part of the reason in 2016 that Trump was successful with some voters. Is like people. I, I've said this before. People vote with their heads or with their hearts, not with their heads. And um, there are there are certainly people out there for whom. Um, what has been happening in the country, like the policy choices that have been made haven't benefited them. And, you know, we want to be quick to call people um, who support Trump, and some of them are, because he is racist, sexist, uh, you know, a chauvinist, a misogynist, all of these things. Um, But 
there are also people who have really real concerns um, about how they're going to, you know, provide health care for their family, how they're going to get their kids through college, how they're going to take care of a an aging parent. You know, these are real, real things that affect people's lives. And I think people have felt like their voices aren't being heard. So to me, this election isn't even about policy. It is about, like, do you get the fundamental um, emotional state of the American people? Do you get the 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 trials that they face in their everyday lives do you have solutions for them and like do they feel like you're presenting them not in a way that like is what you want to hear but actually what you think is the solution i think that is a lot of the reason for why liz warren is doing uh, as well as she is right now is like listen i don't i don't agree with her approach to getting to some of these ends but you want to know what i really appreciate is that I fully believe that she is not poll testing these things. She is not poll testing her message. She is not poll testing her uh, her her solutions to these problems. I think that these are the things that she thinks will actually solve the problem. And I think that that is really that comes across on stage. And you know, if you would have asked me in January uh, if Liz Warren was going to be, you know, in arguably second or third place. Uh, for the nomination, I would have laughed you out of the room. And I also think that the country loves a comeback kid. And I think she has made a really compelling um, compelling story for for th- that she can come back. And I don't know. I, th- yeah. I, think it's, I think it's interesting, but we'll see. And that was an interesting point you made about the fundamental state of the American people. Like, where are we, where are we exactly? And, and yeah. the politicians identifying that. Do you think that that's like a... I think that's a hard thing to identify, obviously. I mean, I think it is because I, I think like, I think some people think that we're the fundamental state is division and we are, you know, hard right, hard left. And then people like yourself and I, like we think that actually most people are more moderate and more rational and we just want to hear like actual policy proposals and things. But yeah, then you're running against Trump, you know, in 2020. So what's that? You know, I just. That's going to be an interesting part to to zero in on for sure. Here's what I think. I think um, elections are conversations that you have with the American people. And for all, for, for certainly in 2016, we had a conversation that we couldn't win because we were always playing defense. Um, And I think like to, to really effectively win an election, you have to understand the emotional state, because like I said, people vote with their hearts, not their heads. So, like, to me, if, if the real, the, and, you know, disagree with me, m- many people might, but I think I'm right on this, is that, like, the emotional state of the American people at large is, in 1932, when FDR was elected in the, at the, the height of the Great Depression, uh, and let me tell you this, when FDR, uh, so FDR was elected uh, governor of New York in 1928, re-elected in 1930 because the governorship had two-year terms. When he was elected president in 1932, uh, imagine, and this is not an original me quote, but just to illustrate this, the state of the country when he took office. Uh, imagine uh, 100,000 people file into a football stadium uh, for a game on a Sunday or whenever, whatever day they play football. 100,000 people. Uh, at the end of that game, before they leave, every single one of those 100,000 people gets a, uh, a slip that says you're fired. So you've got 100,000 fired people. 
Now imagine that happening again the next week and the week after that and the week after that for 52 weeks out of the year. Now imagine that happening for three straight years. That Then you have 15.6 million unemployed people at the time in a country of about 100 million people. Uh, you know, let's say 60 million of those were uh, of working age. You had 25% unemployment in this country on the day that FDR took office in 1933. The country was in a depression and the country was depressed. And I think at that time, FDR, like, he ran as a happy warrior, right? He, he ran this sort of, we can solve it, up uh, because he got the emotional state of the American people. Fast forward, um, how many years? 86 years or however many years uh, to 2020, 2019. And I, I really believe that the state of the American people right now is we're not depressed, we're not in a depression, the economy is booming, but there is this like underlying insecurity. There's an insecurity about, uh, and I think it transcends race, it transcends class, it transcends gender, everything. There's an insecurity on a macro level and a micro level about where we, what, where is our place in the world as a country and as a person. And I think that Donald Trump in 2016 understood that, and I think he still understands that now. You can tell he understands it, because there are two reactions that people have to insecurity and uncertainty. It can go two ways. When you are uncertain or insecure, you can either become fearful of the future, and I think Donald Trump very very well plays into that card, You know, making you think that um, you know, just the way he treats people, the way he pits our neighbors against each other. He understands that 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 the emotional state of the country right now, fear is a natural. Uh, if you know, open the door on the left, and it is fear, right? I think Democrats have to understand that the, that the antidote isn't trying to be to be something other than that. The antidote is understanding that when we are insecure, the uh, the opposite of of fear is what the opposite of fear is excitement. And I think that like the the if we if we really accurately understand the state of the American people, you you can win this election by by making people excited to solve these problems, making people feel like they don't have to feel afraid. You know, like we are where we are, but like be excited, be, be uh, you know, sort of play that happy warrior um, role that FDR played in 1932. Um, because I, I think that is the best foil to what Trump is trying to do. And if you can make people excited for the future, I really believe that there is no there's no limit to what can be done. So there ends my rant. I think that's, I think that's that was great. Yeah, and you know that was making me think. There's a good tie-in. You know, between Jake, what you were mentioning earlier is you had a nice night. You chose not to, you know, spend two three hours watching a bunch of bickering. And, and enjoy some time with your wife and then try to catch up. And I found, too, that, you know, with my little snafu of starting the debate, having to pause it for a work call, is I'm still intrigued that 12 hours later, I cannot watch the full debate from last night. I'm, we're still buffered in this media soundbite to kind of steer us into what is our consensus. And with what you're saying, Michael, is I'm looking to find that consensus. I'm looking to find out how I even feel about it. And I don't want to watch more media. I almost, I just want to like glue into the real people on how they felt like last night went and where right. they're at today. I don't want to watch 12 hours of media analysts and 
media figures tell me how I should feel. Right. Yeah, so I'm think really surprised. Right. Surprised, you know. I mean, any other speech out there, whether it's a Donald Trump speech or a Nancy Pelosi speech or anything, they're available immediately online on every online event. Sure. I'm confused why I can't catch up on last night before tonight. And working right. in a media company myself at NBC, I know we do this for a reason. We're trying to make money. We're trying yeah, to do clickbait. Right. So it's like, how do you, you feel like we, we get out of this and go back to like this FDR side? Do you think, is there a, a better way than interrupting people every 15 seconds and trying to get 10 people involved? Or instead of two nights with 10 people each night, we could set up one where candidates to have a different presence where they have a podcast channel, where Bernie and Liz can be on their own podcast. And maybe rather than CNN host it, they can also do debates in a different way, like podcast debates, where you have three people. You know, Because we all know in work se settings that there are quality brainstorms, but you can only brainstorm if you have a really specific one problem and you're right. all forced to be in the same room because of a paycheck or somebody else to get it done. Right. It's a really odd thing where you have everybody that's massively funded trying to get on a stage and time box them to 15 minute ideas. It's like we're trying to ruin our democratic process. So is there a new way to do this, maybe through podcasts or something else where we can improve conversation and improve the connection between voters like us and the candidates and what they're trying to say? I think there is. And I think it, it is. I think that there's an opportunity. Um, I think that a lot of um, certainly we see it on the right that there's this distrust of the media, right? We see it with fake media and whatever, but to say that that is a, um, a phenomenon that is, um, specific only to the right in this country would be just wildly naive. And I think that it's something that the left hasn't really come to terms with. I think that the center and the left of this country, which is, the, I, I think that, that the distrust of the media is unfortunately, um, a very American phenomenon that transcends a lot of different uh, um, sort of ideological and geographic lines. Um, and so I do think that there's an opportunity. I mean, I understand that campaigns are like this, these, these huge entities that are everyone's working their asses off. Um, and, you know, you, it's very hard to it's hard to innovate in them because you spend so much of your time sort of putting out yesterday's fires. Um, and, you know, you sort of uh, you have limited resources, so like doing new things isn't always um, isn't always looked highly upon because like you have no empirical evidence as to whether that's effective until like either you're raising more money or people are voting and 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 you know that's rolling the dice either with your time or with your resources and campaigns aren't willing to do that or, or are loath to do that and I understand that but I think you get to a really interest or a really true point which is that there is we're clearly not having a conversation in the way that people are now consuming information. We're missing that. And we're missing out on the places where people are, are, are consuming their information um, because people aren't so much watching broadcast TV, CNN, or I'm sorry, uh, CBS, NBC, ABC, or cable news, CNN, uh, Fox, or MSNBC, nor as many people reading traditional print media, right? So like, uh, you know, I think we're a perfect microcosm for the country. I watched the whole debate. Uh, Dan, you watched half of it, but we're sort of frustrated with, you know, various parts of either the structure of it or just sort of the delivery process. And Jake, you were going about your life. 
and I think like we ha- we would be loath to, uh, or, or we would be we would be really mistaken if we didn't uh, use these next couple months to really innovate and figure out like okay where are like what are we doing to um, to reach people where they are right like FDR had fireside chats and really really sort of turned the use of this new machine the radio on its head and his first fireside chat which was I think. It, well, I know it was in 1933, and it was on uh, the banking crisis that was happening. Uh, millions or hundreds and thousands of banks across the country had shut down. The, oper- the country was or, or had failed. Uh, th- there was just this huge cash crisis. People were hoarding cash. It was insane. FDR did his first fireside chat. Said hoarding had become an uh, what did he say? Uh, an increasingly unfashionable pastime. And the next day. Uh, millions of people went to their bank and deposited millions of dollars back into their accounts. And literally, you know, some people say that capitalism was saved in a, in a week. Um, I think there's that opportunity now uh, to sort of cut out the middle person. You know, I, I think so many campaigns play to this, like, you know, what is the press thinking? And I think they miss out on the fact that, like, people don't care what the press is thinking. There are some people, and you certainly have to play that game. I'm not saying abandon that strategy. But I am saying, like, if we are really serious about winning, we have to have about beating Donald Trump, about like about um, turning back the the division that he has caused in this country. We have to do new things. We have to put new resources now into talking to people where they are, because if we decide to do that in, you know, uh, a year from now, it's going to be too late. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I totally agree that I, I think that one of the best ways I believe is for candidates to like do their own podcast. Lots of candidates are, are getting that 120 million people are listening to podcasts in this country. Again, a country of 327 million people. Um, you know, that that's 40% of the country is actively listening to podcasts once a week. Podcast listeners, we know uh, from our own experience and just from empirical data that's available, podcast listeners are incredibly loyal. So it's like, okay, you're getting halfway there, candidates, by going on other people's shows. But like, mm-hmm. I really believe that that the real way to like, to sort of create lasting change and have like this relationship, a one-on-one relationship with voters that actually, you know, can do something not only to help you win an election, but then help you to govern, is to start this now. Start your podcast now and call us if you want to do it because we seem to know a lot about both uh, doing podcasts, well, a lot <laughs> about podcasts and a lot about. Um, politics so in any case i hope someone's listening um that sees that opportunity as i as i do i have another question for michael this is a tough one and i don't know if it's an answer but i only like tough questions good so i see a a bunch of differences right in fdr's opportunity one you know just the time and technology you you barely got radio nobody's using it newspaper is a newspaper you don't have televisions in people's houses you don't have inbox alerts and emails coming in. So just the raw shock value of your president suddenly being in your living room, uh-huh. that alone, maybe he could have just yammered for 17 minutes and at the end of it said, bring your money back in, and the same thing would have happened. Today, there's so much information overload that while I think it's a good thing to do, I wonder if what's our step next, right? In the long term, now I have candidates doing podcasts I have all these people trying to get into my home when 
like Jake said, I'm just trying to get them out of my home. I'm trying to not get another email from you know, a committee yeah. to donate money. And I'm wondering, like, what's the next step? I think that's you know good for now. You know what the difference is, though? We... Like, but, I'm sorry to interrupt. But the, the difference is between that is, like, I'm a huge podcast listener. Like, you you hit play. You hit pause. You you just you can fast forward through ads. You can like you are completely in control of the consumption. And I think mm-hmm. that like when you turn on the TV, uh, you, you almost lo- you, 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 you lose all the, the control you basically. Are, you, you can yeah, turn the channel the certainly or turn it off. But like if I want to watch, you know NBC, um, boy, I just whatever they throw at me, commercials, advertisements, uh, their hosts, like I can't control any of that. And I think that's the real beauty of podcasts. Yeah. That's a good point. And I'm, I'm, I have this feeling that I really want the parties to change how they work. I want to want them to be more like those techno parties that are spinning up that don't have the brick and mortar behind them. And I wonder if that change will happen over the next two years where, you know, some parties will be trying to figure out what to do with this lack of control and other parties will embrace it because they need that back and forth with their constituents. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say first: is that parties, like, parties are really weak, and don't let it. Parties are both weak and like anachronistic. Is that the right word? Um, they are very slow to change. It's sort of like you don't, you don't get big organizations, uh, big old organizations, to turn on a dime. Um, so I, I do believe that, like, to. Um, uh, I am. I tend to be more of a, like an incrementalist. Um, I'd rather get something done than like blow up the whole ship and start over. So all that to say, like I, I, I don't. I don't necessarily have an answer to your exact question of like what's next, but I do think that I wouldn't expect like the party to change. I think that it, it, we. I think the American people have these ideas. Like you know, I remember in 2016, people railing against the DNC. Um, for a quote, for what people thought was, you know, tipping the scales in Hillary Clinton's favor. To which my response was like, "You really think the D, like you really think the DNC can do that? You really think that?" Uh, because I, I don't. I just don't believe that. Like parties have been getting weaker and weaker in this country, both Republican and Democrat. Look, the Republican Party nominated Donald, Donald Trump, uh, who is about as far from traditional conservative values as you can get, right? Principles and values, like. So the parties are weak, um, and so so I don't I don't really look to the party to be a leader on this. I look to the candidates, and I look at, you know, mm-hmm. which candidates out there. And I I have probably I would say a list of like five or six, who could actually sort of see this new which of these campaigns candidates have, um, sort of uh, medium or or, or 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 can fill this space and and do it authentically. Right, because I think that's one of the things that is the truest thing uh, about podcast listeners is that they like there's this sort of expectation for authenticity, and you know I think the way the candidates prepare to go on Rachel Maddow or Andrea Mitchell or um, you you know Joe Morning Joe or whatever, like the way they prepare for that is so different from how they would prepare or be prepped to like record a podcast and so to me it's like okay which which of the candidates are willing to sort of um see the future and sort of uh embrace it and not be afraid of it and you know we'll see who those are if there are any um i think there will be some but 
uh, I, I just think that the ones that don't choose that are really missing out on an opportunity. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting full circle is my, my brain always tries to make connections. And I'm thinking back to Jake when you were we were talking about music and the connection and things missing in your life and you kind of want that stability. And, and I resonated with that with as a vocalist because I didn't have like a viola or an instrument. I would sing when my instrument myself felt emotionally good to do so. And you were off. I was forced to do it in a team and I had to figure out when to do that and come back to it. But I missed that. In politics, I'm feeling myself getting removed from it, and I miss having those quality conversations because people are – there's a lot of hypertension going out there as far as can I even have a uh, an accurate conversation with someone? Yeah, can I, I be that. real with somebody? <laughs> can I even watch a debate without getting interrupted every 15 seconds when I'm just starting to like a candidate? Oh, well, people, and then it goes yeah, to a yeah, commercial people, break, you know? You know people, and lose, uh, people lose relationships with their aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and parents because they, they just they can't even talk to them because the politics, you know, meddles things up so much. People are literally losing relationships with their most, you know, close and loved ones because of politics mm -hmm. and i just think we're so far from where we were i don't think that yeah. i disagree with that that we're far from where we were i think that that it's always i think that this has always been a phenomenon so uh, i people you, always you don't think it's getting magnified though like no i think that it is more i think that it is a, a distinctly american phenomenon that is um that is just being pushed pushed in our face more like it is social media makes it so much more uh, and and that's not to like did, this did, is not to normalize anything but i'm saying that like i'm not, like I, what i'm really arguing with is is a contention that like things are necessarily worse than they've ever been um, and i'm not necessarily saying that that's what you were exactly getting at but i mean like let's not forget that in you know, for four years in the 1860s, this country, you know, 600,000 people blew each other to pieces, uh, uh, you know, across, you know, Virginia, Tennessee and Georgia. Right. Like, yeah. so we had a civil war. Uh, Things have been worse. We 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 had uh, reconstruction, which was just all generally bad. We had, um, you know, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so uh, I think yeah. that like. We've had really tumultuous, contentious, divisive times in our country's history. Now, I feel uh, like my, I was mostly addressing the fact that Dan said, like, you know, he's missing the conversation, the political conversation between people. And I feel like, you know, I don't think that my my parents had aunts and uncles who don't talk to each other because of, you know, politically back 50 years like I don't yeah, think that I, I don't think I politics were the dividing you know we certainly had big issues and and maybe we would go to war civil war and and have these big things happen but like also we would have more uh, <laughs> the relationships were different they they just yeah, were like, it didn't reach the it didn't re reach like the familial level right. where politics we, were much more private then I think that's part of it like think of how I I say why well, i love watching mad men and the number of times there that they that like they reference that like it is not becoming to to share you know there, there were the the third rail topics which were politics religion and i can't remember the other one um but just things that like it was known that you just don't talk about right po politics were private and i think uh we live in an era now where just like politics is so much more public that yeah i, I it is really a new like, that specific thing that you're talking about of like 
relationships being broken because of politics, I think that is really new. Yeah, um, the, the collective nature. I, I was thinking the other day about um, generations and what our generational knowledge and experience has been. And I mean, I lost my grandparents. You know, some of them back in high school ten years ago already. I have one grandmother left that was around when World War II was there, and their generations experienced something where there was not political turmoil when it came to World War II. There was people that right, didn't believe they, they should get involved. But everybody had to send a person. You know, my grandpa, him and right. all four brothers went over there. And the factories changed. People changed jobs specifically for that purpose to help save people's lives or affect life in a different place. That was very much crafted i mean there's a lot of people that will watch documentaries and feel like there's obviously a lot of countries that went through their own turmoil russia had their own experience the uk had their own experience the whole trade routes there, there's all of that there but the american phenomenon was that that everybody made a sacrifice when right. we're on the debates we're trying to pick and choose who has to make the sacrifice now and nobody's doing it you know if if we just went in and and said for the next four years, everybody's going to make a sacrifice and we don't have to send people to war or it's not that type of sacrifice. We're, we're all splitting up and shattering and we're all, for the most part, a lot of people are successful and they're okay successfully not talking to my uncle anymore or my aunt or that person on Facebook. They're okay continually removing themselves and I'm wondering what is going to happen in the world or who is possibly going to galvanize us to make a commitment to give something up for the betterment of each other again. And, and I think that's where these debates are going to. And just like the weather war is kind of like that too. There's seasons that get everybody on the same page in Minnesota. We're a nice state because we're forced to all get on the same page four times a year. The country, I don't know when the last time we're able to force each other to be on the same page. Well, you know, you you made the point with war. I mean, it was nine 11, you know, just in the, like the last time that the country I feel like was truly uh, galvanized and on the same page and like had this overwhelming sense of unity was following nine eleven. Like Buttigieg yeah. made that glaze for a great point last night. He said, you know, nine eleven is eighteen years ago. People that are fighting in Afghanistan right now, are some soon, of them weren't you know, born. They yeah. weren't alive then. And at yep. some point that effect of World War Two, that effect of nine eleven whether it was good or bad, it was real at the time. And now we're finding ourselves in this mess. And I hope to God's sake that we don't find each other in like another Vietnam or another situation or another conflict that tries to get us all on the same page. And really it just shatters us further than we already are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And I think like here's here's where we are is that uh, as we go into to I guess people will be listening to this after night two of uh, of this round of debates and, and there will be fewer people in round three uh, in September because they changed the rules and you have to have 130,000 donors and not or uh, 2% in, in I think three polls um, so the, the field will winnow pretty substantially I would say my guess is we'll be down to like 12 rather than you know 20 something um, but all that to say is like what I think we are to this point where like people are looking for that um, sort of unifying figure, someone to, um, you know, someone that we can all follow in a direction. And I think people are less concerned about uh, the details of that plan. I think like right now we're in this situation where like 
Rome is burning, do you ask how the fire started or do you just get a hose? And and I I, I I'm I really hope that um, you know it, it's a two way street. You know we have to do our part to be part of the solution, and I think candidates have to sort of not just do what they've always done and sort of look at where people are, take them at uh, take them where they are, take them how they are, and and sort of have that conversation there. And I'm interested to see how it plays out. Cool, me too. Yeah, Mom. <laughs> I'm going to daydream the rest of the day about um, everyone that's raising kids nowadays that are going out for ice cream and cooking dinner and not watching debates. I'm wondering what their kids are going to grow up. And it's just going to get worse and worse unless we don't fix it now or, or change it now. And I don't I don't know what it's like in everyone else's households. But I mean, I grew up with parents that would watch every single debate, then would watch C-SPAN, then would watch both sides. They would flick back and forth between NBC and Fox and just see what everyone was saying and what they were thinking. And there is so much information to make sure we're involved. I'm a little disenfranchised, I'll admit it. But like, what's that duty in the next generation look like? So if they fix it today, what does it look like, do you think, long term for getting people back involved in the process with the you know, new millennials new millennials, or people that, are, that might Gen only Z. have a phone and not even a laptop, yeah. you know? Gen Zers. Um, I don't know. I think fundamentally it comes back to the 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 truth that, like, democracy is not a it's not a spectator sport it's not a static thing like it changes it'll look different um and we have to work at it because otherwise uh things fall apart if we don't um so i i don't have the answer to that and i don't think anyone does what it'll look like um but i i think we so many of us agree that like it can't look like this right like this isn't gonna work so some we gotta try something right. Else. Right. yeah i think the like we have the tools now to be such voyeurs in in politics and in people's lives and we have to, we can't forget that you know we still need to make those phone calls to our friends and not just creep on facebook we have to uh actually be involved with issues that matter in our local communities instead of just you know tuning into the some of the major issues on the presidential debates and like like michael said just be involved and like do what you can whether that's writing letters to your senators and, uh, you know, local officials, or if it's just having those conversations with your parents again and getting, you know, getting things started. I think that'll go a long ways. For our leaders running right now, I, I just watched Iron Lady the other day. Um, and I love both Meryl Streep and Maggie Thatcher. So it was very exciting. Margaret Thatcher, prime minister of Great Britain, from 1979 to 1990. Um, and there's this great line in it. And I think like, I just would love to sort of, sort of mainline this to every, um, every person running for president is she said, uh, it used to be that people tried to do something. Now everybody's busy trying to be something. Mm. And, uh, think about that. And it's really true. I think, um, let's all try to do something. Dan, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. That was a fun conversation, and uh, definitely. Yeah. Well, hope hopefully you guys have me back soon, and, and we can get more into those topics, more on other topics, that. get to know each other better. Is there yeah. a, is there anywhere that as like, if we can? <laughs> is there anywhere uh, that you want people to look for you online, or uh, anything that you want to throw out there 
for our listeners? I mean, I, I love conversation all the time. So Daniel Alcato, D-A-N-I-E-L-A-L-K-A-T-O. You can find my Instagram, message me, um, start conversations uh, with me, with other people. Pretty friendly guy. I try to be, so. This is uh, this was really great, and I think uh, I think it'll be great. <laughs> I don't have anything other to say than great, apparently. Cool. Yeah, thanks, uh, guys, for having having me. Yeah, we'll uh, have you again. Hey guys, thanks for sticking with us for another episode of Very Public Breakdown. If you don't already, please give us a follow on Instagram at Very Public Breakdown and on Twitter at VPub Breakdown. Join the conversation. We'd love to hear what you're interested in, what issues you're concerned about, and how we can help you avoid your own very public breakdown. Until next time, guys, take care.